Before the existence of written records, humans systematized combat. From prehistory and into the modern day, martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization. Whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war, or to compete, or to preserve a tradition, or to touch personal greatness, these codified methods push us to ask questions, to explore, to express, to test, and to tell stories. This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. Coal for Jersey Joe, Part 3 There are several conflicting stories about why poverty-stricken Arnold Jersey Joe Walcott Cream was offered a final chance to embark on a boxing career towards the end of 1944. To be accurate, he'd already had two matches in June that year. These easy wins had been an eight-round points victory over Felix Del Pali and a third-round knockout of Ellis Singleton. They were probably acts of desperation to earn a few extra dollars to support the meagre earnings he was getting from Camden Council. He'd even fought under his Arnold Cream birth name, quite possibly to make a point that this was no comeback. He and his family had seen the bouts as isolated incidents, a brief revisit to a time when he dreamed of fighting for the World Championship and becoming worthy of the boxing stories his father had told him. You're never gonna make it, you're not good enough There's a million other people with the same stuff You really think you're different, man, you must be kidding Think you're gonna hit it, but you just don't get it It's impossible, it's not probable, you're responsible Too many obstacles, you gotta stop it, though You gotta take it slow, you can't be a pro Don't waste your time no more Who the fuck are you to Vic Marcillo was in trouble He was a New Jersey fight promoter and in need of boxers But not just any local pug who was willing to trade leather He needed an investment Someone who had potential to do well And entertain those willing to fill the convention hall Furthermore, this investment would need to be willing to work for the modest amount of wages Marcillo was willing to pay them. Recently, he and his partners, fellow Italian Felix Bocchicchio and Bart Garino, had opened the Camden Athletic Club in order to run these matches. Marcillo and Bocchicchio had known each other since 1936 when they began working together to promote fights at the Camden Armoury. Marcillo became acting matchmaker and manager with Garino as the official matchmaker, Bukikio, most agreed, was the money man. He was the person who could get funding by fair means or foul. However, business was bad for the athletic club. As the new year loomed, they had no one to top their bill on the 11th of January. According to some sources, Vic Marcillo had remembered Jersey Joe for when he had fought at the convention hall in 1938, or perhaps it was at the armoury when he outpointed Bob Toe in 1939. Sources then diverged to whether it was Marcillo who approached Jersey Joe or if it was Bukikio. Fight City's Michael Carbert lays the entire credit at Marcillo's door. Tom Myler, in Close Encounters with the Gloves Off, claims that Marcillo put the idea to Bukikio to track down Walcott. However, James Curl's Jersey Joe Walcott, a biography, offers yet another more detailed account of what happened. 
According to Curl, Bakikio's search for a top-line fighter had first led him to Rocco Aletto, better known by his ring name, Roxy Allen. This was the same Roxy Allen who had been universally credited for suggesting Jersey Joe become a professional fighter back in 1930 and then been knocked out by him in 1935. Allen had retired from the game a year or two later with a record of 36 wins, 22 losses and 7 draws. Bakikio's connection to Allen was not just through boxing. They were both second-generation Italian immigrants and both became involved in organised crime early in their lives. Bakikio on the hard streets of Philadelphia and Allen in South Camden. They both did time and they both walked with noticeable limps due to being shot in the leg by rival mobsters. Allen, perhaps due to knowing about Jersey Joe's two match successes in June, told Bakikio, quote, I'm through with boxing, but go after Walcott. He's around and he's no more than 50, end quote. So it happened, according to Curl's story, Bakikio did not need to look far and he was introduced to Jersey Joe at Mr Prompkin's poultry store. Jersey Joe was out shopping and more than likely trying his credit with Mr Prompkin to get something to feed his family. On the 7th of December 1941, Japan's attack on Pearl Harbour had finally forced America's hand to enter the war. New Jersey's famous shipyard had sprung into action and new jobs were instantly created. This would have been as much incentive for the disillusioned and malnourished Jersey Joe to give up his love of boxing as the knockout he received on an empty stomach from Abe Simon. After his seasonal coal delivery job stopped, he, like countless other New Jersey residents, got work helping to maintain ships for the military. Beginning as an unskilled labourer in 1942, he worked his way up to Corker and Chipper. He could earn up to $85 in a good week, although it was usually around the $58 mark. Although the work was regular, the Cream family would be in constant debt and Jersey Joe would be working hard in vain to catch up with local creditors, such as shops like Mr Prompkins and his landlord at Magnolia Street. Felix Bacchicchio was described by biographer James Curl as being every bit the 1940s gangster image, with his black, slicked-back hair, grey pinstripe suit and Lucky Strike cigarette hanging from his bottom lip. Mario Puzzo would later use the name Felix Bacchicchio for the fictional character in his 1969 famous mafia novel The Godfather. The real Bacchicchio seemed to be doing a decent job of running a straight business, but his rap sheet was fairly extensive with everything from rum-running during the Prohibition era of the 1920s to breaking and entering, prison-breaking, and he was even tried and acquitted in the murder of a police officer. His associates were a veritable who's who of the mob world, including the Philadelphia South Jersey Mafia mob boss Angelo Bruno and senior founder of the commission Charles Lucky Luciano. Bikikio explained to Jersey Joe that Roxy Allen had recommended him to headline his upcoming fights at the convention hall. The intended flattery didn't balance with the years of disappointment. According to boxing writer B.R. Bearden, Jersey Joe said, Fighting never got me nothing before, and all I want now is a steady job so my wife and kids can eat regular. I'm over 30 and just plain tired of it all. Bikikio didn't push the matter and didn't directly offer Jersey Joe the work. Instead, he extended the hand of friendship and told the boxer, Say, if I can help you in any way, don't be afraid to ask. My office is at the top of Camden Athletic Corporation on Market Street. Christmas was now a week away and Jersey Joe had found himself in a similar financial situation as he had done in 1938. 
This was when a $75 victorious fight had saved his family during that festive season. This time, it was worse. There were now six children. Lydia had given birth to a daughter, Carol, on the 14th of December, and Jersey Joe had an empty pocketbook. He would have to swallow his pride and take the enthusiastic gangster up on his offer of help. So Jersey Joe made the walk over to Market Street and called in on the office. Used to disappointment, it was no surprise to be told that Pakikio was not available. Still, Jersey Joe left his Magnolia Street address with a message that he had called before writing the episode off as another empty promise and trudging off to look for other available work. What did take Jersey Joe by surprise was Pakikio turning up at his door the next evening. However, the lion's share of shock was felt by the fight promoter when he walked through the door plugged with the old burlap sack that served as an entrance to the tumble-down two-storey shack. He saw the children huddled around the stove, the cardboard substituted for glass in the windows and assorted cracks letting in the chilly winter air. Bikikio later said, quote, Even if Arnold would have turned down my offer, I would have still done something for his family. They really needed it. Bikikio could immediately see the main problems faced by the Cream family. Rather than discuss a boxing career, he told Jersey Joe that he would fill up his empty coal cellar. Prior to leaving, he said, If you want to fight again, I'll get you a manager and get you started. I'll make one promise. Whatever you earn, you'll get. All you need is a little confidence, end quote. As James Curl would add in his biography of Jersey Joe, quote, what Arnold needed was some coal, end quote. It's 23rd of December 1944, and just as promised, a tonne of coal was being delivered to the Cream household on Magnolia Street. According to Coal for Christmas by Michael Carbot, Vic Marcillo is there in person helping Jersey Joe and the children old enough to shovel it into the basement. However, Carbot seems to substitute Marcillo for Bacchicchio in his retelling of the story. Perhaps he meant Bacchicchio, although I think that was unlikely. It didn't matter. The coal was there, and in Jersey Joe's words, I think I never had a happier Christmas. That wouldn't be all. Bikikio also ensured there was enough food to buy the family over the festive season. Boxing Day 1944. Jersey Joe Walcott has made the few blocks walk to 221 Market Street and the Camden Athletic Club. He's seen that Bikikio is a man of his word, and he feels he at least owes him a chance to put forward his proposition. However, it will have to be a good one. This time the old gangster doesn't mince his words. The two don't even make it to his upper floor office. Bikikio is standing outside the building's door on the corner of Market and 3rd Street like a hustler. Looking the world-weary boxer straight in the eye, he asks him, So, do you want to fight again? It's not an easy question for Jersey Joe to answer. He has endured his fair share of broken promises, a broken arm, and has just been plain broke throughout his boxing career. I'm not sure, he replies. 
and then repeats and elaborates on what he said before. Mr Felix, my family is getting along, and I don't know if I want to take a chance on fighting again. Boxing ain't got me nothing before, and all I want is a steady job so my wife and kids can eat regular and I can put coal in the cellar. I'm over 30 and just plain tired of it all. Bakikio was a hard salesman. His active charity had been one of genuine compassion, but now it was time to get down to business. Since he had first heard about Jersey Joe and discussed the matter with his partners, they'd come to the conclusion that this boxer had genuine potential. Anyone who knew the game could see that Jersey Joe had been a missed opportunity in the 1930s, but perhaps there was still time. There was still the spark of greatness, and there was still a genuine need. He had talent, and he had hunger. However, having endured over a decade of being jerked around and being mismanaged, he wasn't some starry-eyed youngster anymore. Bikikio needed his man focused. He couldn't just pay him per fight and hope that would be enough. It hadn't worked before. Look, he tells him, I'll give you money up front and I'll make sure you have enough money each week to take care of your family. Over a decade's worth of shattered dreams hang on Jersey Joe's powerful shoulders. He looks down at the little man with the neat suit and smarter mouth, the criminal record and the wry smile. I don't know. I guess one more shot wouldn't kill me. The road back isn't going to be a smooth one. Jersey Joe's at an age where most fighters, if they're still in the game, have won their championship titles and are in the middling stages of their career. Jersey Joe is going to have to start all over again. However, he has coal in his cellar and a cash advance on future earnings. Bakikio has his boxing license renewed. Now the ageing boxer from Poverty Row has one last chance to perform on an even playing field with consistent training, nutrition and management under wealthy cafe owner Joe Webster. After Chappie Blackburn left him to work with Joe Lewis back in 1934, Jersey Joe's official trainer had been James J. Johnston. Known as the boy bandit from Broadway, he was actually an English immigrant from Liverpool, England, and was more known as a fight promoter and manager than a trainer. Clearly, there was no interest in any parties to pair Jersey Joe with him again. Besides, Johnston would be dead in a year's time. Training duties would now go to Nick and Dan Florio. The Florio brothers were respected trainers. They worked with three-division world champion Tony Canzanieri in the 20s and 30s. Later, Nick Florio would work in Customado's gym and is credited with helping develop future world heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson's fighting style. He was also known for helping with fight nutrition, with some unsubstantiated speculation regarding his use of magic vitamins. Jersey Joe's physique would become a subject for discussion. Like his fighting style, it was quite unique for his time and in general. For a start, he had a low fat-to-muscle mass ratio that contrasted with most of his opponents. Described by some as a heavyweight's upper body screwed onto the legs of a welterweight, it seemed somewhat apt that his hallmarks would be his powerful knockout punches and extraordinary footwork. Ben Myers originally received his boxing instruction from a semi-pro boxer who was working as a coach at the YMCA in Princeton, New Jersey. Before that, Ben had been receiving boxing instruction from his grandfather since the age of five. Ben's grandfather had also boxed out of Princeton. Since then, Ben has also worked with one of the coaches who'd worked with Mike Tyson after Tyson got out of prison to build a youth boxing program in Pataxent River, Maryland. He also worked with Marvin McDowell and his No Hooks Before Books, UMA boxing initiative to keep kids off the street in Baltimore, Maryland as an assistant coach. 
Ben's extensive experience includes Filipino boxing under guru Rick Tucci of the Princeton Academy of Martial Arts. He studied the boxing applications of Jeet Kune Do with Sifu Lamar Davis III, the street boxing applications of the PFS curriculum at length with Paul Vunak, under whom he's a full instructor. He also worked with Vunak as a security driver and edited his latest book release. He was also an instructor in the Crazy Monkey Defence System under Rodney King. Other experience includes Sean Stark's Gorilla Silat Gorilla Self-Protection Programme, which Ben helped develop. He's also been studying 52 blocks with Charlie Light Burley to help learn the connection between historical boxing and that particular martial art, which was referenced in the previous show. Walcott's defensive movement, footwork shifts, level changes, cake walking, just the general broken rhythm with which he moved his feet is on the level of other defensive greats like Nicolino Loque, Willie Pep, Prince Nassim, Emmanuel Augustus. He was in the pantheon of great defensive footwork masters. It's difficult to understand how amazing his footwork was until you watch him critically and see him change the rhythm, canter, direction, angle, level of his footwork four, five, six times in the span of a round. It's almost godlike. Things get off to a promising start on the 11th of January when Jersey Joe's official return match sees him knock Jackie Saunders out in round two. However, later that month, he concedes a points victory to Johnny Skippy Allen. Then on the 2nd of August, he would face his first top 10 fighter in the form of Joe Baxi. A coal miner from Culpmont, Pennsylvania, Baxi's promising early career had seen him beat future movie star Jack Palance when he was 18. Now rated as number four in the world, he had also defeated Lee Savold, the man with then the fastest knockout in Madison Square Garden's history, and Lou Cosmic Punch Nova, known for knocking out former heavyweight champion Max Baer in 1939. If Jersey Joe could beat him, then the world would have to start taking notice. The reality of the situation was that Jersey Joe is in a transitional period with his work. However, as the war nears its end, shipyard work is now sparse. This turns out to be a blessing in disguise, with Bakikio agreeing to give Jersey Joe advance payments and to ensure his family's looked after. He can now dedicate some serious time to preparing for this important fight. He begins training at Ted Gleason's camp at Greenwood Lake, New Jersey. He rises early every morning to take long-distance runs through the green countryside and eats three large meals a day. During this time at the camp, he befriends the aforementioned heavyweight fighter Lee Savold, a veteran of the scene who has and will fight some of the best in boxing business. Most significantly, Savold has fought Baxi three times and can share vital knowledge on the fighter. He tells biographer James Curl, quote, Lee Savold, one of the smartest fighters I know, worked with me. We practiced little things together and drilled as very few boxers do. The experiences sent me against Baxi with absolute confidence. I felt like a cult, even though it was my most important fight in five years and I'd passed my 31st birthday. End quote.
It's the 2nd of August 1945, before 3,500 spectators, Jersey Joe Walcott, weighing in at 188 pounds, takes on the 212 pounds Joe Baxi. Tonight, Jersey Joe showcases some of the skills he had first developed over a decade ago under Chappie Blackburn and has since progressed under Nick Florio. Jersey Joe would become famous for the way he could change the rhythm of a fight at any time, using clever feints and creative footwork. His shoulder-level guard invited punches that he slipped and shoulder-rolled with incredible timing, reaction speed and dexterity. Like Willie Pep, he isn't scared to take a neutral stance at times, to allow for more lateral movement, or to become a switch-hitter by fighting in a narrow southpaw stance. His unpredictable choppy footwork not only includes such techniques as the Walcott Shuffle and the Cakewalk, but is also used as part of a grander scheme to manipulate the fight rhythm. The great Sugar Ray Robinson will later famously describe boxing as all being about rhythm. Jersey Joe has become a master of not only creating rhythm, but of breaking rhythm, often catching opponents out on a half-beat. He sets up false patterns to draw opponents into carefully laid traps, most represented in a confusing tactic known as a stutter. He inserts pauses in his movements, prompting opponents to act or react too soon allowing him to take advantage of the opening or to make an abrupt angle change. Tonight, he will debut one of the most famous signature moves, the walkaway. Jersey Joe describes this wily tactic. Quote, I faked a movement in one direction and went in another. I let Baxi manoeuvre me into striking range and half-turning walked casually away. When he thought he had me solved, I teased him with jabs and shook him with rights. End quote. Walcott would stand square to his opponents and often double slip or double shoulder roll while facing square. Meaning, he would roll with one shoulder to catch one punch and then roll his other shoulder back to catch a second punch. This is an insane tactic to be even deployed by a high-level young athlete, let alone a guy in his mid-30s facing some of the greatest heavyweights in one of the greatest eras of heavyweight boxing history. The Associated Press reported on the fight, quote, A short squat slugger named Jersey Joe Walcott, who started his ring career as a sparring partner for Joe Lewis back in 1936, is the newest light on the heavyweight horizon. A comparative unknown in top flight boxing circles, Jersey Joe won a convincing 10-round verdict over Joe Baxi, the nation's number two wartime heavyweight, before 3,500 at Camden's Convention Hall last night. Walcott went into a strategic retreat for the first three rounds, nimbly skipping out of the way of Baxi's smashes, and after he had succeeded in tiring his opponent, uncorked a sizzling attack of his own, which had Baxi groggy at the finish. The only official, referee Paul Cavalier, cast his vote for Walcott, who scaled £188 to Baxi's 212 and a half, end quote. Within seven months, Jersey Joe is on the top ten contenders list for the World Heavyweight Championship. After the Baxi victory, Bakikio and Webster set him up with a couple of journeymen to plough through just to keep him sharp, pad out his record and ensure that the single loss earlier that year was just ring rust. Jersey Joe knocked out Johnny Denson in round two on the 20th of September and delivered a technical knockout over Steve Dudas in round five. Now Pakikio decides to shape the Walcott contender campaign. Jersey Joe will clean house in the top-rated division, taking on the toughest fighters who have a reputation for being avoided.
It's a shrewd psychological publicity move and will work as a useful comparison to the image beginning to emerge of the current world champion. Boxing narratives often repeat themselves. Champions become complacent at the top, fighting hand-picked opponents that will be easy wins whilst they fail to notice the emerging threat of the hungry challenger. Rumours often spread that the champion and his management are avoiding real threats, depriving audiences of a genuine contest for the championship. Most boxing historians and fight experts would agree that Joe Lewis was an extremely active champion. As we have seen, he carried a tremendous burden on his shoulders. Every single fight he fought after winning the world title was the defence of that title, and he fought regularly. In less than three years of winning the title from Jim Braddock, he had defended it 11 times. He left the 1930s having soundly defeated every one of the five men who had worn the belt. This included a rematch with the 1930-1932 world champion Max Schmeling, the only man who had beaten him at this point in his career. It was a match he had insisted upon since becoming the champion, thus granting Schmeling the opportunity he had earned through first beating Lewis and denied through the hard negotiating Lewis's management had made with Braddock's people. Joe Lewis was able to redeem his single loss with a stunning one-round knockout. Finally, he became an American hero with the win against a boxer who was representing Nazi Germany. Joe Lewis would go above and beyond in embracing his Captain America image when he would enlist in the army in 1942. He dedicated the purse of his last two professional bouts to the war effort before touring with the troops to fight in exhibitions and to boost morale. However, between his 11 title defences and enlisting, Lewis took his world title on a monthly tour of the USA from December 1940 until May 1941. Every month he would put his championship on the line for a different fighter. The idea was to offer more fighters an opportunity to fight for the greatest prize in their sport. At the end of the six months, he would take on the number one ranked contender. For Lewis, it was another example of his being a genuine champion and allowing a wider range of fighters an opportunity to go for the main prize in their sport. Unfortunately for those who competed, this period would be dubbed by the press as Bum of the Month Club. The bookies were in alignment with the mainstream media in the belief that none of these contenders were a genuine threat to the title. Two of the fights were officially opposed by the authorities due to the belief that they were mismatches and dangerous for the contenders. These were his match with Gus Durazio and Tony Baby Tank Musto. The Durazio match caught the attention of the state senator who threatened a legislative investigation. Durazio's bout's predictions proved to be right when he went down for the count in round two. However, Musto, although a bloody and beaten mess, was still standing and wanted to continue when his match was halted in round seven. As it turned out, all but the Durazio match defied expectations and lasted past the predicted fifth round. These had included the colossal slugger Abe Simon, who had sent an underfed and overworked Jersey Joe into early retirement a month previously. Chappie Blackburn wasn't so sure. He said prior to the fight, quote, I look for Joe to knock him out, but he ain't going to have near the easy time doing it that a lot of folks think, end quote. Lewis took 13 rounds to stop him. The tour ended with former world champion Max Bear's giant younger brother, Buddy Bear, who equaled the tallest heavyweight champion in history, Jess Willard, in stature. Bear had shocked everyone by sending Lewis through the ropes in round one, and the match had ended controversially when Lewis knocked Bear senseless after the bell rang in round six. 
Sadly for the valiant fighters who gave it their all against the Brown Bomber, their performances would not elevate the stigma of this tour. Instead, criticism was and still is made of Lewis's standard at the time. The normal narrative is to say that Joe Lewis lost his edge during his time at war. But looking back at this period prior to the war, it would appear that some were already making this argument that his greatness was slipping. Following the Tony Musto fight, regular Lewis referee Arthur Donovan had declared the world champion had seen better days. This is what had got Buddy Bear his shot. With the tour over, Lewis faced Ring Magazine's number one ranked contender, the world light heavyweight champion, Billy Conn. If Lewis had been considered to be ponderous during his Bum of the Month fight series, this bout would not quieten those critical voices. Conn gave up his light heavyweight title in a bid to become the first light heavyweight to win the title without going up a weight. He rose to the top contender spot by beating seven other heavyweights, including such high-ranked fighters as Bob Pastor and Lee Savold. Joe Lewis underestimated Conn. He even thought it was worth losing weight and drank little water prior to the fight, hoping he wouldn't look so big against his lighter opponent. This enraged Chappie and worked against Lewis. Conn was comparable to other great light heavyweight champions, such as Tommy Lothran, in being a consummate outboxer who could handle much heavier boxers. Unfortunately for both Lothran and Conn, their pure boxing style deprived them of any real knockout power. For 12 rounds, Conn stuck to his circling footwork, securing a firm points lead. In the 12th round, Conn had become emboldened by an exchange with the now dehydrated and visibly tired champion. Conn had even gone as far as to manhandle the bigger man in the clinch, turning him around like a knack moy. Lewis's lack of energy was telling as Conn easily blocked his punches and scored back with his own. Prior to round 13, Chappie told his trainee that he needed to go for the knockout. However, the now overconfident Conn decided this was going to be his plan too. He'd rocked Lewis during the exchange and he'd got so close to knocking him down he could taste it and temptation was too much. Rather than keeping the fight at long range for the next three rounds and cruise in with an easy points victory, he was going to engage the exhausted looking brown bomber in a slugfest. Lewis didn't need a second invitation. Once he realised the circling footwork was gone and it was all happening in the pocket, he let fly. It was Conn's time to underestimate his opponent and a two-fisted assault sent him down. Lewis was still champion, but serious questions were being asked about his ability to remain at the top. Joe Lewis fought two more bouts before he began working for the army. These were rematches where he demonstrated his familiar style of coming back harder against opponents who had shown some promise previously. Buddy Bear was annihilated in round one of a charity event where the proceeds and the entirety of Lewis's purse went to the war effort. Bear also enlisted on the next day and gave up boxing for a career in acting. Abe Simon was Lewis's final pre-war service opponent. As Joe Lewis returned to Long Island's Camp Upton in 1942, he received a telegram informing him that his trainer, the man who had mentored him since his first professional fight, Charles Henry Blackburn, had died on the 24th of April. This visionary coach had gone through much of his life known as Jack Blackburn, but his most famous moniker was that of Chappie, the name his trainees used, especially Joe Lewis. Chappie said the first time he had seen Joe Lewis was on the 25th of June 1934, where he'd noticed his tremendous raw power but little technical ability. 
Chappie had remarked that Lewis was a dedicated pupil who sucked up his advice like a sponge becoming balanced and a technically proficient boxer-puncher. He taught Lewis better balance in his stance and his trademark minimalistic footwork. By teaching him how to shuffle when he moved, Lewis retained his punching power at the same time as closing the distance down on opponents. The Buddy Bear rematch had been the last time that Chappie had wrapped his most famous charges hands and provided advice from his corner. Blackburn had been battling pneumonia for months and had had to listen to the Abe Simon rematch over the radio from his hospital bed. A five-day furlough had provided Lewis with an opportunity to discuss this particular bout with his trainer, little realising it would be the last time the two would speak. Although Chappie had struggled with a drinking problem that many have speculated contributed to his eventual poor health, his death had been unexpected. He died of a heart attack whilst receiving a routine physical examination. Chappie had been no saint. He struck a fearsome image with a jagged scar down his face as a permanent reminder of the manslaughter conviction that had totally derailed his chance to become lightweight champion of the world in 1909. Chappie had then later faced charges for shooting a man in a gunfight in Chicago around the time he was preparing Lewis for his fight against Max Baer. He and a one John Bowman had become embroiled in a brawl that spilled out into a shootout in the street, injuring a little girl of nine by the name of Lucy Cannon and a 69-year-old Enoch Hauser in the crossfire. Despite Bowman later dying of his injuries, Chappie was cleared of the charges just three months prior to Lewis's first fight with Max Schmeling. This fateful first loss for Lewis would totally be owned by the great champion. From Jack Johnson's critique to Jersey Joe's later recollection of his short-lived sparring with Lewis prior to the fight, everyone seemed to have a story to tell about Lewis dropping his lead hand before he jabbed. Lewis would later say that Chappie had said in his corner, quote, Don't go for the knockout yet. Keep jabbing him off balance so he can't get that right in. And for God's sake, keep your left arm up high. I wish I'd listened to him. End quote. The impact of Chappie's death on Joe Lewis was immeasurable. He named his first child Jacqueline after his trainer and said in his autobiography, quote, I guess I thought I'd be heavyweight champion forever and Chappie would be always with me. Chappie had been another father, a teacher and a friend. So when you really think about it, I lost three people, not one, end quote. Lewis would be one of several thousand mourners who attended the Pilgrim Baptist Church for Chappie's funeral on the 29th of April 1942. As the war neared its end, the fighting landscape had been changing, but promoters weren't so sure it had changed enough. Although the World Coloured Heavyweight Championship was no more and the colour bar had officially been lifted after Lewis had won the title, his only fight against a top black fighter had been with light heavyweight champion John Henry Lewis back in 1939. The view expressed to Jersey Joe all those years ago by his former manager that promoters weren't interested in pitting the Brown Bomber against other black fighters still seemed to hold a lot of water. Boxers like Jersey Joe and his African-American contemporaries were going to have to work at least twice as hard as their white boxing counterparts. This is why Bakikio selects opponents for Jersey Joe who the reigning champion has shown aversion to fighting. First up is Lee Q. Murray. The man Hall of Famer trainee Ray Arsall calls, quote, the biggest hitter in the heavyweight division besides Joe Lewis, end quote. He is the number five rated contender and is on top of an 11-fight winning streak at the time he faces Jersey Joe on the 11th of November 1945 at the Baltimore Coliseum. 
Although he's another fighter that towers over Jersey Joe, he is totally dominated. Early on, Murray is hurt by Walcott, and from this point onwards, Jersey Joe adopts a tactic more suited to a Swarmer-style fighter. Murray, the archetypical slugger, never gets an opportunity to unleash his famed heavy punch as Jersey Joe consistently crowds him. In the end, he is disqualified in the ninth round for stalling. It's not a great fight for Jersey Joe, but for the first time in his life, he earns a four-figure payment. He is given $2,000 for his win over Murray and is now ranked as number three in the world. Jersey Joe Walcott finishes his ninth and final bout that year by fighting the old gatekeeper, Curtis the Hatchetman Shepherd. Since the last time they met in 1939, Shepherd's reputation as a journeyman has risen. In fact, he's become a far more seasoned pro, doing well against some of the best fighters in the light heavyweight and heavyweight circles. In over 200 fights, Archie Moore will nominate Shepherd as the hardest puncher he ever faced, including Rocky Marciano. He was the only man to knock out the famously resilient Joey Maxim. Shepard is also an opponent that Lewis has reportedly sidestepped. Despite his previous defeat by Jersey Joe, Shepard is considered the favourite. This time Jersey Joe is the heavier of the two fighters when he weighs in at 192.5 pounds to Shepard's 191.5 pounds. Still, Jersey Joe is the swifter of the two in the opening rounds. His shuffle and walk away totally bewilder his opponent, as Shepard is repeatedly caught out with stinging jab crosses and drawn into ambushes. However, round four looks like Shepard will get his revenge and drops Jersey Joe with a right to the jaw. Jersey Joe recovers, but now, as is often the case, his opponent smells blood and goes on the offensive. Shepard takes rounds five and six, but Jersey Joe isn't going down any more. He takes charge in the seventh, and Shepard takes powerful blows to the body. By the tenth round, despite the knockdown and losing three rounds, it looks like Jersey Joe has enough to clinch the fight. However, he isn't going to leave anything to chance. The puncher side of his boxer-puncher hybrid style comes out, as it had done in the Baxi fight in round ten. However, this time, several devastating punches to the chin send Shepard down for the count, and Jersey Joe nets $2,400. Jersey Joe Walcott closes out 1945, winning eight of his nine matches. On the 30th of January 1946, Bakikio's venue, the Camden Convention Hall, witnesses Jersey Joe's rematch against Johnny Allen, who had outpointed him the previous January. It's an appropriately swift affair, leaving little doubt of where the two fighters now stand and the fact that Jersey Joe Walcott has grown out of the local fights. Now, with this defeat decidedly avenged, it's time Jersey Joe took on yet another opponent, apparently avoided by the Joe Lewis management. The Cleveland Spider-Man, Jimmy Bivens. This is the man that Joe Lewis has publicly stated would be the next world heavyweight champion. And his camp has reportedly turned down a $100,000 offer to fight him. This African-American outboxer from Cleveland, Ohio, would be another example of how hard it was for non-white fighters to get a shot at world titles. Bivens had done more than enough. He had been both the number one contender for the world light heavyweight and heavyweight championship and he'd gained the respective unofficial duration titles in the process. These were sometimes described as interim titles used during the time that the current title holders were doing their military service. 
Originally from Dry Branch, Georgia, Bivens started his professional career in 1940, around the time Jersey Joe was deciding to hang up his gloves. He had been inspired to take up boxing in response to being bullied as a teenager. He earned his ring name, the Cleveland Spider-Man, from his extraordinary ape index, which made him a very difficult opponent. Bivens' long arms were put to good use in his defensive work, blocking and posting opponents, as well as providing a very effective jab. By the time he was booked to face Jersey Joe, he'd racked up a record of 52 wins, 5 losses and 1 draw. Amongst the scalps he had claimed were future light heavyweight world champions Joey Maxim and the legendary Archie Moore, as well as future world heavyweight champion and soon-to-be Jersey Joe's arch-rival, Ezard Charles. His victory over Charles had earned him the duration light heavyweight crown. Many critics feel the fight will be a mismatch and Jersey Joe has no business entering the same ring as Bivens. It takes place on the 25th of February 1946 at the Cleveland Arena in Bivens' hometown. International News Service reported the following. Quote, Jimmy Bivens, the Cleveland, California heavyweight, with ambitions of meeting the winner of the Lewis Conn title bout, saw his dreams explode today after a disastrous loss to Jersey Joe Walcott in a 10-round attraction in the Cleveland Arena last night. Bivens, without question, lost the first four rounds, but rallied to win the fifth with a series of telling lefts and rights, which had the KG Walcott reeling for a time. After the between-rounds rest, however, Walcott came back to score impressively in each of the concluding rounds. Early in the seventh, he cut loose with a series of right and left jabs which crashed Bivens to the canvas for a count of eight. Both judges voted in favour of the Camden NJ Oldster, but referee Jackie Davis of Cleveland turned in his ballot for Bivens. End quote. Despite only winning one round and being knocked down for an eight count, it's a split decision. However, few are in doubt of Jersey Joe's talents now, and that includes Bivens, who reportedly refuses to fight him ever again. It's time Bukikio took his charge to the mecca of boxing, Madison Square Gardens. Before that, however, he revisits the convention hall in Camden to put down another opponent in little time. Al Blake meets the canvas in round four on the 20th of March. Jersey Joe's debut at the Garden sees him take on Lee Omar, a native of Joe Lewis's hometown of Detroit. The fight is described as a breeze for the New Jersey boxer puncher. Early in the fight, he catches Omar with a right to the jaw that sends him down. Jersey Joe continues to dominate and wins a unanimous decision. He returns to the illustrious venue in August that year to stop the game slugger Tommy Gomez in round three. However, Jersey Joe's campaign meets two late stumbling blocks in his next fights back in his hometown of Camden, New Jersey, at the Public Service Ballpark. As part of an event to raise money to Camden County Elks Crippled Children Fund, there's another upset. However, this time, Jersey Joe is on the wrong side of denied expectation. In front of a record crowd of 7,709 people, the largest outdoor boxing audience in New Jersey's history, Joey Maxim clinches a disputed decision. Maxim born Giuseppe Antonio Berardinelli, took his ring name from the world's first self-acting machine gun for a reputation earned by his rapid-fire jabs. These do not seem to serve him well in the first two rounds as Jersey Joe closes the distance and delivers punishing body shots. 
However, these shots result in Jersey Joe breaking a bone in his left hand and dislocating several knuckles in his right. With his knockout power greatly diminished on such a famously iron-chinned opponent, Jersey Joe has to rely on his outboxing skills. The press and an unofficial scorecard support the view that he's pressed the fight enough in the remaining eight rounds to secure a victory. But the fight's only authority that night is referee Paul Cavalier, and he's more impressed by Maxim's keen ring generalship. Jersey Joe experiences his first genuine setback since he came out of retirement. With the loss being controversial, a rematch should set the record straight once Jersey Joe is recovered. Maxim's side are happy to accommodate him. Jack Doc Kearns, Maxim's manager and the man famous for handling Jack Dempsey, declares to the press that next time Maxim will stop Walcott. However, this rematch will have to wait. It is decided that Jersey Joe will face another old rival from the 30s. Elmer Kid Violent Ray has emerged as another hungry fighter, keen to test the colour bar by being the first black man to challenge Joe Lewis for the title since John Lewis. He's a slugger from Federal Point, Florida, who will eventually retire with 70 of his 86 victories coming via knockout. Like Curtis Shepard, he's another fighter beaten by Jersey Joe in his journeyman years, who has since built a better reputation. Prior to the Jersey Joe rematch, he had won 50 consecutive fights in just three and a half years. His victories have included three wins against Obi Walker, the penultimate world-coloured heavyweight champion, and a second-round knockout of Jersey Joe's friend Lee Savold less than three months ago. Nevertheless, based on the fact that Jersey Joe's previous win over Ray had been a third-round knockout, the proposed bout at Madison Square Gardens on the 15th of November looks like an easy match for Jersey Joe to fill out his card and continue to clear house of heavyweight contenders. Team Walcott has underestimated their opposition again. To the delight of Elmer Ray's manager, Tommy O'Loughran, the split decision in favour of his fighter vindicates his belief against the odds. Ray, like all the boxers in our story, has his own tale of fighting from the bottom and having to prove his worth against extreme opposition. O'Loughran says the same thing heavyweight boxing managers have been saying since the bum of the month club. Quote, I told you I had a good fighter. You'll all laugh. But I tell you, I've got the guy who will beat Joe Lewis. End quote. 1946 ends on a bad note for Jersey Joe. He now has at least two losses to avenge before he can get to Joe Lewis. There is little time to waste now. Ring magazine will publish a list in February 1947 that ranks El Murray ahead of Jersey Joe in contender position for the title. However, before that rematch, he will have to face the man in the number 10 position. Joey, the machine gun Maxim. On the 6th of January 1947 at the Convention Hall in Philadelphia, the United Press will say that Jersey Joe Walcott tried to knock the ever-resilient Joey Maxim out. However, they will contradict such intensity with the statement that there was no knockdowns and no bloodshed. It seems that Jersey Joe has decided not to go for the knockout he tried in the previous match, but to play Maxim by his own game to lean into his own outboxing skills. The ploy works. Maxim works his jab in its normal stabbing fashion and even goes to the body on his opponent. However, despite being penalised for a low blow in round four, Jersey Joe earns a majority decision with the two judges scoring six rounds to him and the referee scoring the match even. With Maxim and Jersey Joe now having won a piece, it is time to fight the rubber match with Elmer Ray. Ray, now considered a hotter prospect than Jersey Joe for the Lewis fight, is given a $25,000 purse 
some $10,000 more than his opponent. Jersey Joe knows his opponent is a very different fighter from 1937 and like Maxim, it might not be the best of strategies to rely on a knockout. Nevertheless, it proves to be an exciting and close match. The United Press report the following. Quote, Jersey Joe Walcott, a seasoned heavyweight whose experience carried him to a close decision over Elmer Violent Ray at the Orange Bowl Tuesday night, moved to the front among challengers for Joe Lewis's title. Walcott made use of every opening to slip home telling blows, while Ray, a slightly harder puncher, several times had Walcott groggy, but could not take advantage of his chances. It was an extremely close fight and was decided on the basis of points, with Walcott getting the edge on a two-count knockdown of Ray in the third round. Walcott's experience and boxing ability were what paid dividends. Changing his stance often to confuse Ray, he had his opponent coming in and belted him with rights and lefts. Ray never was able to figure out Walcott's changing style. End quote. Things were certainly beginning to change around Jersey Joe. His third fight with Ray was the first time two black boxers had fought one another in the Orange Bowl and the first time white seconds had been allowed to work with people of colour in Miami. However, this does not automatically mean that Joe Lewis's management will consider another black fighter, let alone Jersey Joe Walcott, to be his next opponent. Back in April 1945, the Army promoted Joe Lewis to the rank of technical sergeant. Later in September, he was awarded the Legion of Merit for incalculable contribution to the general morale, an honour rarely bestowed upon enlisted soldiers. This qualified him for immediate release in October. He returned from the armed forces to defend his title. However, he had more to worry about than those hungry wolves that had been eyeing up his title. He was set to face a crippling tax bill that would ruin him and limit his financial freedom for the rest of his life. This was despite, and as we will see, because of the charity bouts he fought for the war effort. Lewis had even voluntarily given money to the government in large sums, such as paying back the city of Detroit any welfare money his family had received. However, at this moment, his manager, Jim Jacobs, also claimed Lewis owed him $250,000. Jacobs had often fronted money for Lewis, usually so that he could spend it on his family members, putting some through education, buying cars and homes for others. According to the Arlington National Cemetery's biography on Joe Lewis, over the $4.6 million he earned during his entire fight career, $3.8 million went to his handlers. Lewis needed fights fast, but needed ones that would get him a sizeable purse. Billy Conn, given his previous performance against Lewis, was the obvious match the paying public wanted to watch. However, this would have to be a big outdoor event in order to create the sort of money Lewis required. It had been postponed to the summer of 1946. The hype was built up with Lewis stating the immortal words, quote, He can run, but he can't hide, end quote. When it occurred at the Yankee Stadium, New York, the match was a pale imitation of the previous one. Conn was warier than before, rarely engaging, and his own skills had deteriorated due to not boxing professionally since he'd entered the military. The Associated Press would award him their sporting condemnation of Flop of the Year. After seven rounds of stalking Conn around the ring, Joe Lewis stunned the challenger with his signature right cross. He then dispatched him with a swift right uppercut left hook combination. Although it made more money than any other fight in Lewis's career, it still fell short of what was expected 
and was mainly distributed amongst his management, his ex-wife and the state of New York. Elsewhere, on the 10th of June, nine days before the fight, Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion of the world, had stopped off around the 1,300 mile mark of his long road trek from his home state of Texas to New York, where he intended to watch the much-anticipated Lewis vs. Con rematch at the Yankee Stadium. Now largely pushed away by a black community who sided with Lewis in a feud born of decades of animosity felt between Johnson and Chappie Blackburn, Johnson still could not keep away from the Lewis fanfare. Hungry for the spotlight, he still felt drawn to Lewis's fights and was always on hand to give a critique of the champion to the press. His old enemy Chappie had died four years previously, but Blackburn's dislike of Jack Johnson and what he represented had lived on in Lewis, who treated the 1908-1915 world heavyweight champion as a non-entity. Johnson and his journey companion attempted to eat at a roadside diner in North Carolina, but refused entry due to its racist segregation policy. Johnson had stormed out and jumped into his sports car. It was a familiar scene. During the height of Johnson's fame, he had reportedly given a traffic officer a $100 bill when he was flagged down for speeding. When the policeman had told Johnson he didn't have any change, the Galveston giant had flashed his famous golden smile and said he could keep it as he intended to be speeding on his way back. This time, however, there would be no way back. Johnson somehow lost control of his car and crashed it into a light pole on the US Highway 1 near Franklinton, North Carolina. Johnson was transported 25 miles to St Agnes Hospital. The hospital was part of St Augustine's University, historically a black college, Having been founded in 1896, it was the largest African-American hospital between Atlanta and Washington by the 1920s and had been built by students of the college who had quarried and laid the stones themselves. It was later speculated that Johnson, who died that day, could have been saved if segregation laws hadn't prevented the hospital access to technology available at the time. Robert Horn wrote there was a feeling of regret amongst members of the black community for the way that Johnson had become persona non grata due to the feud with Lewis. In the unending intra-political war between radical and moderate approaches, the zeitgeist in the West favoured moderation. Joe Lewis seemed to be vindication of the Booker T. Washington philosophy. By contrast, Johnson's extreme defiance to white oppression was seen as a damaging and irresponsible relic of the past. Decades later, after the Civil Rights Act had been passed and new heroes in the form of Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X made moderation seem weak, ineffective and enabling of oppression, Lewis's opposition to Johnson remained strong. Johnson was newly rediscovered as a revolutionary hero for the counterculture of the 1960s. His biography was immortalised in Howard Sackler's 1967 play The Great White Hope, later made into a biopic starring James Earl Jones in 1970. This is the same year boxing manager Jimmy Jacobs and boxing promoter Bill Caton assemble the existing Jack Johnson film footage and create a popular documentary on his life. The 1970s was also the time that Joe Lewis decided to push back at the prevailing view of the time and he publicly took the metaphorical gloves off in his 1978 autobiography, clearly expressing the bitterness he felt for how hard Johnson's reign made it for him. He writes, quote, Jack Johnson ruined boxing for blacks, especially black heavyweights, end quote. Back in Lewis's era, the mourning black community accepted that, at the very least, 
Johnson had once been a folk hero and had achieved what none had done before him. His courage was never in doubt. The words of his last wife, Irene Pinu, were hard to dispute and record an age at the beginning of the 20th century when people of colour had a symbol of hope against seemingly impossible odds. Quote, I loved him because of his courage. He faced the world unafraid. There wasn't anybody or anything he feared. End quote. When asked for his comments by reporters, Lewis's reply was polite. Quote, he must have been a great fighter. My trainer, Jack Blackburn, knew him well and said he was great. End quote. After Billy Conn's defeat, Tammy Moriello was next in the Ring magazine rankings. Moriello was another spirited fighter who had done well within the high-ranking circles during the war years. He'd fought Jimmy Bivens twice for the duration title, losing the first to a split decision and the second one to a majority decision. He had a tremendous right hand that had seen him beat Lee Savold, Gunnar Barland, Lee Omar and Lou Nova twice. After knocking out Britain's Bruce Woodcock, a favourite of the Lewis camp, Moriello got his shot on the 18th of September 1946. Within the opening seconds of round one, Moriello circled to the left and threw a wide left hook. The punch caught Lewis's attention and he didn't see the straight right. The right caught him flush on the chin. Moriello's plan had worked, but he would not see it through to fruition. As he tried to capitalise on the damage caused and went in for an upset, trying to throw another right, Lewis held on and cleared his head. The two separated, and that was all the time the champion needed to recover. Moriello again lunged in with a right, but he was beaten to the punch by Lewis's own famous cross, and then a succession of lefts and rights sending him down. At the two-minute, two-second mark, Moriello was knocked down for the second time, and the referee had seen enough, stopping the match. The bout had been short, but audiences would remember it as exciting. Had the swift defeat of the next-ranked fighter proven that the Brown Bomber still had the tools, or had the stunning blow, somewhat reminiscent of a few of the lucky punches landed during the Bum of the Month period, demonstrated that Lewis's skills were waning? All that Lewis and his management knew was that they had to choose opponents carefully to ensure a good draw. This meant that, yet again, Lewis would not be as active in his defence as he had been in his pre-war years. They still liked Bruce Woodcock. The lively fighter had risen through the light heavyweight division claiming the North Area title in England before jumping up a class to win the British and Commonwealth titles on his 21st professional fight. Prior to being defeated by Moriello, he'd had a record of 25-0. After the loss, he had beaten future world light heavyweight champion Freddie Mills, claimed the vacant European heavyweight title in a match with Albert René and compiled four more victories afterwards. Discounting the tenuous claims of ancient lineages with around a millennium's worth of missing historical evidence, Britain was still seen as the birthplace of boxing and it remained incredibly popular there. A fight between a British fighter and an American was always going to be a tantalising draw for fight fans. However, this one would not materialise. After his successful rematch with Elmer Ray in March 1947, Jersey Joe Walcott's camp demands consideration for their man to fight for the world heavyweight title. Mike Jacobs' 20th Century Sporting Club, that is, Joe Lewis's management, declare they want Bruce Woodcock, should he win his next scheduled match in April against Joe Baxey. Baxey has already defeated... 
British and future world light heavyweight champion Freddie Mills. Woodcock looks largely outclassed in the first two rounds. Baxi knocks him down three times in round one, but Woodcock makes it to his feet each time. Round two sees him go down twice, but he's determined to fight on, and he does so valiantly. At the end of round four, a photograph is taken of him sitting on his stool with his right eye swollen closed. Woodcock makes his comeback in the very next round, but it will be short-lived. By round seven, the referee steps in as Baxi drops punch after unanswered punch on the courageous yet completely spent Bruce Woodcock. Woodcock is sent to hospital with a broken jaw. The 20th Century Sporting Club now decide that Baxi has earned the right to challenge for the title, but do not declare it publicly. Mike Jacobs is recovering from a stroke and leaves the promotion to his lawyer, Sol Strauss. Strauss announces that Joe Lewis will defend his title on another big outdoor show, though no challenger has been named. The Kikio approaches Strauss and discovers that Baxi is first in running. He quickly argues that Jersey Joe has already soundly defeated Baxi and every other deserving contender for that matter. Strauss defends his decision on business reasons. He believes that Baxi to be a far bigger draw. In truth, Strauss and his team are still nervous about putting two black men together for the world title. The Joe Lewis, John Henry Lewis match was eight years ago. Have the times really changed much? Are the public ready for this kind of fight? The horrible circumstances surrounding Jack Johnson's death a year ago would indicate that they still had a very long, hard way yet to go. Segregation was still in place in many states and the Civil Rights Act was 17 long years off. As the American sports writer John Lardner said at the time, quote, Jack Johnson died crossing the white line for the last time. End quote. Strauss turns to Nate Wolfson, Joe Baxi's manager, and proposes the fight to him. Wolfson's response is surprising. He turns Strauss down, declaring that Baxi is not ready to take on Joe Lewis just yet. Jersey Joe's case grows stronger. However, Strauss still isn't convinced and hopes Baxi might reconsider. Meanwhile, Joey Maxim still feels he's owed a rubber match and on the 23rd of June 1947 at Gilmore Field, Los Angeles, California, Jersey Joe gives him that opportunity. Joe Lewis is fighting too in a four-round exhibition and his face takes centre place on the posters with Maxim and Jersey Joe either side. The situation must seem surreal for Jersey Joe Walcott. Just two and a half years ago, he was penniless, struggling to keep his family warm and fed over the Christmas period. He had given up boxing ambitions in order to shovel coal, haul rubbish and work on a shipyard. Since then, a local gangster has made Jersey Joe a promise to have a sixth chance at achieving his dreams. The gangster has done this by having Jersey Joe shovel coal again. However, this time, it was enough to fill Walcott's cellar, and from then on, he's received support on the treacherous path to boxing success. Now, here Jersey Joe is, many miles away from the local halls where he fought on a hungry stomach, at an event that is hosted by none other than the great jazz and swing artist himself, Old Blue Eyes Frank Sinatra, and in front of over 9,000 people. Celebrity guests include Lana Turner, Tyrone Power, Cary Grant, Mickey Rooney, Lou Costello and George Raft. Jersey Joe remembers the $15 he earned from his first fight that he had to split with his handlers and how excited he was when he gave the remaining amount to his mother, who had said if he was good enough, 
he could be heavyweight champion of the world. Now, with a big family of his own, he's guaranteed $35,000 and one last obstacle. One last test before he can try to go for this dream. The fight goes the distance again. Maxim and Jersey Joe are awkward opponents as usual. Both are counterpunches, but Maxim works the outside. Jersey Joe cannot get that knockout, but works the body. Later, Jack Kearns will accuse him of repeatedly hitting Maxim's hip. It goes to a split decision. Referee Reggie Gilmore scores the fight 55.5 to 52.5 in favour of Jersey Joe Walcott. Judge Benny Whitman scores it 53 to 55 in favour of Joey Maxim. Mushy Callahan scores the fight 55 to 53 in favour of the winner, Jersey Joe Walcott. A month later, over in Europe, Joe Baxi fights Swedish champion Ol Tanberg in Stockholm. Tanberg has only been boxing professionally for four years and it is expected to be an easy fight. However, it turns into an upset with Tanberg winning a split decision. Despite still holding the number three ranking, Baxi's defeat will convince him to pull out of the contender race to take a year off fighting. The path appears clear for Jersey Joe. He will now face the heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Lewis. However, not all the dominoes have fallen. Strauss and Jacobs are reluctant for Lewis to put the title on the line. They agree to the fight, but it will be a charity event, a milk fund 10-round exhibition bout. That Lewis's management hopes will build momentum for the big outdoor title fight they have been promising against a contender with a genuine draw. What happens next is a matter of historical contention. Some say that few advanced tickets were being sold for the proposed charity event, whilst others argue that New York State Athletic Commission ruled that any 10-rounder would have to be for the title. Either way, Jacobs was forced to turn the bout into a full 15-round title contest in front of 18,199 people at Madison Square Gardens. That December in 1947, Jersey Joe Walcott would meet his old sparring partner, the man who had taken his place as Chappie Blackburn's protégé over 13 years ago, Joe Lewis, for the heavyweight championship of the world. End of part three. This concludes Coal for Jersey Joe. The story of Jersey Joe Walcott will continue in season five of Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Arts. Hello, this is Jamie Club. Before the end messages, I have a special extra message regarding training over the festive holiday season. On the day after Boxing Day, Peter Jones of Cajun Roo has kindly booked me to teach his excellent club for two hours. The subject will be stand-up guards, their strengths and weaknesses. I'm particularly looking forward to teaching this ever-evolving topic and hoping to put to bed a few myths that can circulate in martial arts circles. Now, Peter has very kindly offered to open what was a workshop specifically for his club to the greater community. He's going to stream us via the magic of Zoom across the world. So for the paltry sum of £10 and two hours out of your holiday time, you can join in with us in the comfort of your own home. You can pay Peter directly via PayPal to C-A-P-T-A-I-N-T-A-U at hotmail.com or email him to ask for bank details. Cajun Room members, see your instructor for a special price. The Zoom link will be provided to those booking and paying. 
So, if you would like to break up the post-Christmas anti-climax, or after Boxing Day fit in some actual boxing, not to mention kickboxing, Muay Thai and stand-up MMA, we'd love to see you there. Check out this episode and my future page for more details of the event. In the meantime, this is Jamie Club wishing you all a very Merry Christmas. My other books, Wrong Fu and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, are also available through Amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Wrong Fu is a prequel to my Bullshit Sue and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com the details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltale or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I would be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and at long last TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there as well as filming of my various lessons so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show. <laughs>